one. This is the fun bit. False teachers and their destruction. Amazing. Let's just pray first because I think I need it as well as you. Lord Jesus, once again we open your scripture and we hear from you. And Lord, I just pray that as we do so, we won't read into it things we want to read into it, but we'll truly hear what your word is saying to us in the context of the rest of your word and what your Holy Spirit reveals to us. But Lord, ultimately, as we're looking today, it's about true versus false. And Lord, we want to know what is true. We don't want to go off on our own wild escapades in the head of what these things mean. We want to know what the truth is. We want to understand what the rest of your word says in context. So Lord, help me as I pass this on, but help all of us this morning to leave this place certainly challenged and provoked. We don't want to walk away from here indifferent each week. Lord, we want to truly hear from you, hear your truth, so we can stand firm in the life we live and in the world outside. So Lord, help us this morning. Mm, Jesus. Frank Abagnale is an American guy who lived a remarkably fascinating life. Amazing life. In his life, he has been an airline pilot, travelled over 1 million miles, flew over 1 million miles in planes. He's also been a university professor in sociology. And he's been a resident paediatrician for two years in a hospital. And he's been a prison inspector. He's also been a successful Hollywood writer. And he's been a lawyer on the back of a Harvard qualification. Amazing. He spent $2.5 million across 26 different countries, all before the age of 21, all under false pretenses. He fooled a multitude, a multitude of people, most of them professionals. He worked alongside doctors in the hospital who didn't cotton on to the fact that he wasn't a legit doctor. He sat in cockpits flying around the world alongside, alongside qualified pilots who didn't cotton on to the fact that he wasn't a qualified pilot. This was all under false pretenses and all in five years between the ages of 16 and 21. He, went, he was prematurely grey and looked a bit older, so he got away with the age thing. This is how he did it. This is a true story. He did it all under false pretenses, false documents, under eight different personalities, identities over the years. You see, there's a film called Catch Me If You Can that Steven Spielberg made with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's all about it. It's a great film and it's all true. It's remarkable. But this guy fooled multitudes of experts. You see, fakery counterfeit goods, scams, con artists, they're everywhere in the world. You see it in you know, counterfeit clothing and currency and art and software, pharmaceuticals and so on. It's everywhere. So actually, we should not be surprised when we discover that this kind of thing can be going on in the church as well. This is the trouble. See, we can be lulled into a false sense of security thinking, well, this is the church, we're safe from that kind of thing. That's what happens in the world. We have to be very, very careful that we don't get lulled into that false sense of security and then discover that we've been fooled all along by people or persons or by certain, certain teachings. You see, Bernard Madoff is another one who's been in the press for the past 12, 18 months. He's an American guy who he, he convinced, again, he convinced multitudes. He convinced over 1,300 investors into plowing their own money into his schemes that totaled over $65 billion. So this guy, this is a man whose lies were as empty as his heart and he fooled experts. He fooled professionals. You see, we can be fooled too. We can get sucked into people's lies and not cotton on to the fact that they are lies until it's too late. We have to be very, very careful. And this is what Peter's talking about here in chapter 2. The things we hear on the radio, I'm not talking about general radio, I'm talking about Christian radio. Sometimes 
there's stuff put on there that's actually a little bit errant. There are so many Christian TV channels, which is a great thing, but of course in the mix there, there's stuff we've got to be very, very careful of. What are they saying? So in which case, it can then get a bit scary. Well, if that's the case, how do I know what's right and how do I know what's wrong? This is exactly what Peter's talking about today. How can we be resourced to spot it, to avoid it and to warn others as well? So this is certainly nothing new. There are false prophets all the way through the Bible. You can read about them in Isaiah, in Jeremiah. Jesus talks about them as well, that they have come and they will come. False teachers. These are men who claim to speak from God when they clearly were not receiving God's message, God's message for the people. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. God says there are false prophets who are saying what I am not telling them. Put them to death. That's how serious God is about it. And in New Testament times, these men continued on as they do today as well. And I've got a list here. Don't worry, if you're taking notes, don't worry about taking all the references down. They'll be on the cell notes on the website. But for example, throughout the New Testament times, these men are described variously as in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13, deceitful masqueraders. 1 Timothy 1 verse 4, they're devoted to myths. 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, uh, hypocritical liars. 1 Timothy 6 verses 3 through 5, they are conceited, they are quarrelling, they are corrupted, they are greedy. 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 17, they are ungodly with gangrenous teaching. There's loads in the first nine verses of 2 Timothy 3, but it includes that they're lovers of themselves, they're disobedient, they worm their way in and they're depraved. And 2 Peter chapter 3, Judeans chapter next week, even there there's a verse that describes them as ignorant and unstable. Some strong language there. See, looking at the list, we think we'd be able to spot them, don't we? And yet they fall multitudes. So there's something going on here, you see. The, another word for these people is heretics, which means they willfully deny what the Bible says, even sometimes using the Bible itself to twist to their own ends. But there's one thing to note before we read this chapter about these men who, like I say, by the characteristics you think we'd spot them, people don't. But throughout this chapter, Paul doesn't name any of them. Notice what he does, he describes their teaching. He describes the issue at hand. He doesn't name the teachers. The teachers come and go. They're still around now. I'll be talking about a guy from the 3rd and 4th century who was a heretic, whose teaching still lives on today in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Things don't change. The teachers come and go. It's the teaching that stays and we need to be aware of. So what all Peter's doing, he names no names, but he describes the teaching and warns us about them. And one other thing to note, there is no instruction in this chapter at all. We're so used to Paul's and Peter's and James' letters, all the letters involve instructions, do this, do that, therefore go and do this. This chapter holds no instruction whatsoever, it is all just warning and encouragement. That's all it is. He leaves it up to us to work out how to put it into practice. So let's read, and then we're going to focus on three points that are up on the screen up there. Chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but sent them to hell putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, 
if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. For that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They're like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. First of all, let's just note one particular thing about this particular teaching that Peter is referring to at the time. This includes a particular brand of sexual permissiveness. This is the hallmark of the actual teaching that he's concerned about back then. If you look in verse 13, it says uh, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Verse 14 goes on to say they have eyes full of adultery. And I know in verse 18, by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature... See, you'd think we'd spot that, wouldn't you? Carousing in broad daylight. <coughs> Every sense of what the word carousing means, it's quite graphic. You'd think we'd spot that. And yet they fooled millions. Uh, fooled millions. They fooled multitudes. <laughs> well, not quite that many. But they fooled a lot of people. you think, if you'd see them doing that, and yet they're proclaiming to be of Jesus, you'd think there'd be a, a disconnect and people would be wary of them. But they fooled people. There's something going on here. They were appealing to the lustful desires of sinful nature. In verse 2, the ESV actually describes it, many will follow their sensuality, which refers to loose living, immoral behaviour, and more often times when it's used in the Bible, it's referring to sexual sin. That's what's going on here. That's what these, one of the hallmarks of these men. So here, Peter's got a genuine moral concern as well as a genuine theological concern. So that may not be one of the distinctions or some of the false teaching around us necessarily, but it can be. But certainly there are general elements 
that we can be looking out for from what Peter shares with us that we can apply to our lives in everyday life. Firstly, he says in verse 1, he says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, among us. And then continues in verse 1, he says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They don't do it blatantly, but they introduce their little whispers and their lies secretly while they're among us. Uh, in verse 2, it goes on to say, many will follow. There it is again. Many will follow them. And then in verse 3, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you. They use people to their own ends, selfishly. And then it continues, they will exploit you with stories they have made up. See, now that bit, just while we're on there, with stories they have made up, you look at verse 16 of the previous chapter. Peter has already said, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's already stated, we didn't make stories up, we are eyewitnesses of Christ for who he was, not just who he said he was, but who he was. We saw it for ourselves. We saw him die, we saw him raise again, we saw him ascend again. These are not stories made up, yet these men are coming in with the complete opposite. They're making up stories that people are then believing and going off with them. So they do it in clever ways. Verse 14 Halfway through, it says they seduce the unstable. And then in verse 18, by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people. You see, we think we spot them. Again, like I say, looking through that list, you think you spot them. But they exploit, they seduce, and they entice. They're very sly in the way they do things. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul explains that Satan's ministers had invaded the Corinthian church. They were already in there and he had to deal with it. How did they get in there? Because they seduce and they exploit, they entice. So we are surrounded by false doctrine. There's openly gay bishops living openly gay lifestyles in the church. That at the end of the day is a false doctrine. Because God quite clearly, true doctrine says, God made us male and female and he tends us to keep it, keep it that way. That is the institution of family, male and female, and male and female only. So people live in openly gay, antagonistic to the gospel lives, and yet in a position of leadership and authority, their lives are preaching a wrong message straight away. But in books we read, I'm going to give a couple of examples of books that are floating about at the moment. But also on TV, there's, like I say, there's so many Christian channels. Some of them are great, I'm not dissing them all at all. But in amongst there, we have to be very careful about some of the things we can pick up on. There's the old prosperity teaching. You give this much money, you get that much, ten times, hundred times back and stuff like that. Yes, God does bless us. And he is sovereign. And his economy doesn't work like our economy. But you don't give to receive ten times more. That's not how it works. That's a false teaching. You also get uh, coverings of of, uh, revivals and outpourings and things like that. Some of those are great. Some of those are fine. Others elevate the status of the person involved. They become a celebrity icon. And I think there's sometimes there's something else going on. We have to be very careful. I read just a couple of days ago about a pastor's wife who spotted on one of the channels a pay-per-prophecy thing going on. You give a donation, they give you a prophecy. It's like pay-per-view. It's crazy. Greed. And they exploit people for their own ends, don't they? It's exactly the same. We have to be so careful because we look at that, oh, bless them. We give them a donation to help their mission and then you get a prophecy out of it as well. People can get sucked into that. It's false doctrine. Even outside the church, though, as well. 
we have to realise there is a theology outside the church that can affect us and influence us. Just in the media and the music and the lyrics of the songs and the charts and, and the adverts and the books we read, the magazines we read, even influential people in our social circles sometimes. What's that advert? Is it makeup? Is it because I'm worth it? It goes on as this soundbite, because I'm worth it. People think they deserve something. Actually, I deserve it. The whole point of the gospel is that we get something we do not deserve. And things like that just feed people's mindsets and they start thinking they deserve something and they then apply that to their concept of God. It's a wrong theology. Because then it goes even one step further where people start practising their faith in Jesus' name. People perform miracles in Jesus' name. Spiritualist healers do healings in the name of Jesus. That doesn't validate them. They seem to think it does. They try and convince us Christians, yeah, but I do it in Jesus' name. Ask them which Jesus. Say to them, is this Jesus of Nazareth, who is eternally God, member of the Trinity, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, lived the perfect death in our, uh, died the perfect death in our place, rose again three days later, imparted his Holy Spirit to us after he ascended to heaven, ready to bring us back to him if we believe in him. Is that Jesus? I think they'd struggle to say yes. We have to be very, very careful that just because they say they do it in Jesus' name, it may not be our Jesus. It doesn't validate it. You see, it can be sly, it can be underhand, it can be innocuous. We have to be very, very careful. I'll come up with some kind of four hallmarks to look out for of these kind of teachers, and certainly their teaching as well. And then we'll go on to knowing the truth after. But first of all, these people are often kind, friendly, fun, very appealing. Remember, they seduce people. Let's just take two, two guys from history. There's one guy called Arius from the 3rd and 4th century. And he was a heretic. He denied the full deity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. He said they were created beings. It's Jehovah's Witness teaching. It's exactly the same. still continues now. Arian teaching. But Arius was described by a historian like this. He was a bright, energetic, attractive fellow the kind of citizen whom any Rotary Club would welcome, singing sea shanties in dockside pubs and teaching Bible stories to the Wednesday night faithful, this was an immensely popular man. His story reminds us that heresy does not bludgeon us into belief. We are seduced. People got sucked into it. And then the whispers start coming, the lies start coming. And there was another guy from history from the 16th century, a bit, a bit later, called Socinus, or Socinus. Again, he had similar teaching to Arius on denying the deity of Christ and claiming him as just merely a created being. We also had other teachings about there's no consequences to our actions, stuff like that. It's quite clearly not biblical. He taught these things. And again, a historian describes him as he was a gentleman. His morals were above reproach and he distinguished himself by his unfailing courtesy. Unfailing courtesy was remarkable in an age when even the great Protestant leaders, Luther and Calvin, would use vile street language when arguing with their opponents. I read a quote by Luther the other day. It was a bit crude. It's quite funny, actually, but talking about breaking wind with the devil and stuff. But it's like, it's Luther. It's random. But you see, people would have looked at this Sosinus guy and thought, he's a real gentleman, he's lovely, really nice guy, very courteous, and you've got these brash, crudely speaking other guys. Actually, they turns out they were the ones that were right all along. That's not excusing their behaviour or their language at all. But we have to be very careful that just because people come across fun, friendly and appealing doesn't validate their teaching. 
Quite often they're greedy as well. We've already looked at that. Verses 3 and 14 talks about how they're greedy, do things to their own ends. But there's also another big siren. is in verse 10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. All the way through Peter's letter so far, do you remember the first letter? It was all about submission, about, uh, about humility. If you find anybody who's denying authority or won't submit to leadership and authority within the church, there's something going wrong. It doesn't validate their teaching, it invalidates their teaching. We've got to be very careful. That's a big siren there. But the big one, the big one is heresy itself, blasphemy, denying salvation in Christ alone. Peter mentions it in verse 1. But there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. One little point there, when it says who bought them, doesn't mean they're saved. That's a whole other sermon, but it's referring to the fact that Christ's work on the cross paid the price for everyone, but not everybody gets that paid. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. It also talks about at the end, end of the chapter, it says, um, if they've escaped the corruption of the world and so on, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It's not implying they were saved, it's implying that they were they were uh, open to the truth that was also taught by the good, good teachers at the time. They didn't receive it and went back to the world. doesn't mean they're saved. Okay? You can't lose your salvation. If you're genuinely saved, you're always saved. Well, these people denied the doctrine that they were exposed to themselves in return. They denied that salvation is through Christ only. So we've got to be very careful. Going on to books now, you see, on the same subject, there's a book by a very famous pastor. I'm not going to name names. I'm going to be like Peter this morning. But there's a book doing the rounds at the moment. It's been around for a couple of years now. There's an author, a pastor from the States. He's getting increasingly popular. And what he's trying to do, I can see what he's trying to do. I'm not denying this guy's saved, actually. I'm sure he is. But the way he's trying to do it is trying to communicate with a new generation by communicating in a new way, trying to look at things from a new perspective, which is fine. We need to engage with the culture around us in ways they get. I get that. But he's doing it in such a way, everything becomes very, very wafty around it. There's a quote from him about the virgin birth. I've got his book at home, so I've checked it for myself. He says this, What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real, earthly, biological father named Larry, and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologising that the Gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods also had virgin births. And then he goes on to describe that if you look at the Christian faith as a wall and you take out the virgin birth, everything crumbles. And he says, you can't rely on a faith that's that weak. That means it's a weak wall, not a strong wall. Actually, I suggest you can't take that brick out in the first place. You see, he himself, he doesn't deny the virgin birth. He says he believes in it, but he suggests that it doesn't matter. That's equally dangerous. Equally dangerous. You, you remove the virgin birth, you deny the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man, which is the point. He's fully God and fully man, the perfect mediator on the cross between God and man. That's the point. We have to be so careful not to suggest that something might not matter because that's just as bad as saying that you deny it in the first place. I mean, this is a very well-respected pastor in the States. We have to be very, very careful. Again, I'm not saying he's a false teacher necessarily. I'm sure he is saved, but he's coming across as false teaching because of the way he communicates it. We have to be very careful what people walk away from, walk away with. But there's another book, a work of fiction. 
that's been doing around in Christian circles. Massive, some of you might know what it is, massive book around the world. It's a good book. It's got its benefits, definitely. But there are some serious concerns about it. There are three main concerns. That people walk away with it with a false theology understanding of doctrine as a result. You see, first of all, revelation through experience is elevated massively. And revelation through scripture is diminished massively. It's all about experience. And that's the danger we in charismatic circles have. It's all about experience feeds our understanding of doctrine. But it shouldn't be. It should be doctrine, the word, feeds our understanding of what experience should be. We do it the wrong way around here sometimes. We have to be very careful. And secondly, the trinity in this book have little or no transcendent glory. No real holiness. And on the back of that, the third point is that God denies in this book, God denies that sin is offensive to him. That's wrong. That's not what the Bible says. Sin is hugely offensive to him. Do you remember what I was saying last, last preach about our righteous deeds, let alone our sin, how offensive they are to him? This book only preaches half of God and we have to be very, very careful. Yes, it's fiction, but we can't use that as an excuse to not teach on the back of it. Because people can read this book and walk away with the wrong understanding of the Trinity and of God's holiness. We have to be very, very careful. Very, very careful. We can disagree on some aspects. We can disagree on the use of tongues or our particular experience, or expression of worship compared to other churches. We can <coughs> agree to disagree on things like that. But there are certain closed-hand doctrines we have to never, never, never let go of. If you look on our website, we have 12 bullet points of our closed-hand understanding of the, of the doctrine of the Trinity, of hell, of, the, of Scripture, of the Holy Spirit, of how, how, how we should meet together. We are a corporate church, not just a bunch of individuals. There are 12 bullet points in that doctrinal statement of the website that is closed-hand and we will never let go of. And we have to stand firm with these things. But above all, the key to spotting false teaching isn't looking out for some of those points <coughs> I've given you. Because there are so many variations on the theme. We don't, Jenny and I don't teach Amy, when we're teaching her spelling, we don't show her all the wrong variations she could, she could get wrong or spot when she's reading a book, and therefore they must be wrong. We, all we do is teach her what is right. And then she knows anything else is wrong. That's all we have to do here with teaching. Know the truth. Anything that isn't is false. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, first two verses, he says... By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Know the gospel, stick with it, anything else is false. You see, the experts, to spot fake currency, they don't look for markings of fake currency. They look for the markings of true currency. They look for the well-defined lettering, they look for a defined specific watermark, they look for that silver ribbon or the coloured thread, depending on what country you're in, that runs, gets sewn through the, uh, the piece of paper, they look for uh, serial numbers, have to be well-defined and in the same colour ink as the seal and things like that. If they can't spot those markings, then it's false. See, they look for what is true, anything else is false. You see, the brilliance of the Gospel is we don't need to know all the other errant teachings. We just need to know what the truth is, so when we see anything else, there's something in us goes, that's not right, because that doesn't sit with this. It's while we're on the subject, pray for those of us that preach. Because <laughs> we have to be sure that what we preach is true. All my points here, I haven't just written them down, scribbled them down as they come off my head. I've gone back and checked them, even though I knew them. 
I've gone back to check because I want to be sure that what I preach is true. We have to be so careful. So what is the truth? What is the bare naked gospel? The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's all about Jesus. And as soon as any of that is taken away or added to, you're hitting into false teaching. Know the truth, anything else is false. The gospel is, there is the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existent. None of them are created, they always have been, in perfect loving community together. They created the universe, they created us, male and female. We were made to worship, but we are selfish. And we screwed it up big time because we worshipped other things and each other and ourselves in place of God. As a result, we can't save ourselves. Only God can save us by his grace, his undeserved favour. Nothing we do can save us. So Christ came and lived a perfect, sinless life as fully God and as fully man and he died in our place as the perfect mediator on the cross. And as a result, he didn't just deal with our sin, he dealt with the wrath that was due our way because our sin is so offensive to God. But he rose again in victory. And he, he opens our eyes to faith and submission. It's not us suddenly realising that all this logical process makes sense and therefore God must be real and Jesus must be... He opens our eyes in the first place. He even instigates the process in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Once you are saved, you are always saved, but you are called to a corporate church family. Individualistic Christianity is an oxymoron. It doesn't work and it's not biblical. We're called together. He has given us his scripture and his Holy Spirit and eventually all creation and our relationships with him have already are, but also will be, completely fully restored to the way it should have been back in the first place. It's all by Jesus, it's through Jesus, it's in Jesus, it's for Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. That's the gospel. That's it. You hear anything other than that, you're heading into dodgy territory. Just know the truth. Anything else is false. So finally, know him. This is where the encouragement comes from Peter. He gives us five ifs to remind us that God is in charge. God will deal with his men. We don't have to deal with these men necessarily. If need be, then our elders will deal with them and remove them from our circles. But ultimately, God deals with them for us. There's five ifs. Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, put them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, God dealt with the sinful angels, the fallen angels. They still operate in the world, but they are limited in their ability. They're known as demons, and they are fallen angels. When it says they've been put in gloomy dungeons, it doesn't mean they're shackled there with no power. They have some power, which is why we have to be aware of it. But they are limited in their power, restricted by God already. He has dealt with them and will be dealing with them for eternity as well. And there's another if, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. Nobody believed Noah's message right up until the day the rain fell. Here was a guy, he wasn't perfect, but he was faithful, and he preached the truth. And he ended up with no converts, just his family. But he was faithful, and God honoured that, and dealt with the rest of the people who weren't. He dealt with the ungodly. That's the second if. Third if, verse 6. 
if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Again, God did that. These cities were judged for the very licentiousness that these false teachers of Peter's time were acting in. Again, God dealt with them and made an example of the ungodly. And then there's another if, fourth if in verse 7, continues to say, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. He was credited as righteous by God's grace and God saved him from among those filthy, filthy cities. There's another if. If God can do these things, then in verse 9, if this is so, fifth if, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of punishment while continuing their punishment. To be encouraged. Because we can then start looking through this list of false teaching and just get discouraged and think, oh, I'm never going to know what's right and I'm just, oh, is there any point bothering? Just be encouraged just to know the truth. That's all you need to know and God will deal with the rest. Just be encouraged, okay? Don't be discouraged by this. Because Peter also mentions Balaam. It's a funny story. We're going to be skipping through it quite quickly, but in uh, verses 15 to 16... He says, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You can read the story in four numbers, I think it's uh, verses 22 to 24. Sorry, chapters 22 to 24. This guy is a false prophet. He was not saying what God had told him. He was saying what men had paid him to tell them. Remember that paper prophecy thing? There you go, same thing. Still goes on, doesn't it? God preached against him through a donkey. He got a donkey to speak a man's voice to speak out against Balaam. It's a wake-up call. It's like, don't, don't, hello, have a guess who's in charge here. Donkey speaking at him. I believe, I firmly believe Peter didn't just put this in just to explain that Balaam was just like these men, that they were doing it for their own greed. There's another element to this. There's a subtext that this is not just about the men themselves. This wasn't just about Balaam being a false prophet. Another point of the story is about the people who were paying him because they wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. We have to be very careful that we don't just go looking around, reading books and listening to our favourite speakers and preachers and that because we hear what we want to hear. People paid Balaam because they wanted to be tickled. And the danger is, for all of us, that we go where we want to be tickled. And that's not what God wants. He wants us to hear truth. Sometimes the truth really hurts because we're woken up to reality of what we're really like inside. Or what we're up to and we shouldn't be. Or whatever. Don't just go where you want to be tickled. Trust God and stick with the truth. See, don't fear man... Or fear man's thinking of you either. Remember Noah stuck with the truth firmly and faithfully and he got no converts. But he wasn't swayed by a fear of man. He wasn't influenced by what other people thought of him. He stuck to his guns. And it's very easy to get sucked into the wrong social circle because of fear of man. You don't want to disappoint people or let them down. You want to win people over and you want to be happy, friendly Larry. You want everybody to love you. And you get sucked into this whole social circle where you start getting fed the wrong mindsets. You have to be very, very careful. Stick with the truth and don't let fear of man alter that. 
But don't let it deter you from speaking the truth either. Noah continued explaining why he was building his ark and they laughed at him. But he stuck with it. Don't let fear of man deter you from speaking the truth either. But as a result of that, don't just go where you want to be tickled. Why do you come here on a Sunday? Is it because you just want to meet up with your friends, have a nice cup of tea, sing some songs, hear something from your work from the word so you feel better that you have done, and you go home and you get back on with plodding with your life through the week or reading the bits of the Bible that you like as opposed to the bits of the Bible that you don't like. There's a danger for all of us just to be tickled, just to have an itch scratched. Let me just read from 2 Timothy chapter 4 before we come to our conclusion. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. Here it is again. It happens elsewhere. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. There it is. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, I'm going on a bit further now, aren't I? but you keep your head in all situations. He goes on to endorse Timothy, but don't just go where you want to have your itching scratched. Be aware that there's a whole lot more in truth in here that sometimes we miss out on. This is why it's good for us, as we, as we have been recently, we're going through chapters, uh, going through books of the Bible rather than preaching on topics, which is sometimes beneficial, and we will continue to do that in the future. But sometimes it's worth just going through a book of the Bible because then we don't skip the chapters that we don't really want to touch on, like this one, for example. How often would we necessarily have preached on this chapter as a result? So it's done us a favour. Don't just go where you want to be tickled. Because you see, imagine a man or a woman who's married and gets seduced by the whispers of another and wanders and strays. Jenny and I were watching a, a romantic comedy on Friday night and there was this guy, I could see it coming. There's a guy who's married and yes, there's problems in the marriage. So he's in a shop and bumps into a really pretty, vivacious girl and starts swapping numbers and then they're just, we're just friends, aren't we? I'm not stepping across the line, we're just friends. And I could see it coming, I was hoping he wouldn't and he ends up in bed with her and it's just like, I was so disappointed it was a film, it's crazy, it's a comedy. I was gutted that he'd still did it. Thought, what are you doing? You're married. By the end of it, it all goes full circle and it all, the story works out with a good moral as a result, thankfully. But that is the same as the church being seduced by this men. If we, if we get sucked in by seductive lies of men like this, wherever it is, whether they come through our doors and sit amongst us and whisper things in our ears, or the things we read, or the things we watch on television. It's just like committing adultery on Jesus. It's the same thing. We're being unfaithful to him. It's that serious, isn't it? We have to be so careful. We need to spot the warning signs of his seducer long before they have any effect on us. These men are described as dogs and pigs amongst the sheep. Right at the very end of chapter 2 of 2 Peter... And then we're going to end. There's two proverbs that Peter quotes to describe these men. He says, Of them the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. <coughs> See, like those sows, people get cleaned up, come in the church, get cleaned up, start affect, changing their lifestyle a little bit. Excuse me, but because they're not saved, 
they wander away, they go back into the world, go back into the mud where they feel at home and get dirty again. That's what he's describing. See, change is only cosmetic, it's only on the outside. We can get convinced by people who were sure are saved. Actually, it turns out they weren't. It was merely cosmetic changes, nothing going on in the heart. But the big one is the first proverb he mentions in verse 22, a dog returns to its vomit. It's from Proverbs 26, verse 11. See, these people, he's describing the dogs return to their vomit. These are, these are men who are dogs who preach vomit. They vomit from the pulpit, effectively. And yet people eat that vomit and go home and preach that vomit. They regurgitate it for other people to eat and pass on. It becomes an infectious lie. Did you know the Bible actually says this about that? Does the Bible really say this? It sounds very much like the devil back in Genesis. Same thing. Are you sure the Bible says this? Because actually, you look at it from this point of view, it's actually saying this. And other people go, oh yeah. And they go off to their friends. Did you realise the Bible actually says this? They're regurgitating, eating vomit and passing it on. It's sick, literally. It's a disgusting picture, but that's the point. That's why Peter quotes it. We have to be so careful this is an infection that can spread. This is why they're described elsewhere, as I've already mentioned, as having gangrenous teaching. We have to be so careful. We've got to stick with the truth. Stick with the truth only. Stand firm and have courage to know that God is in charge of all things and he will judge them. One last little look up and we will end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Paul says this. And remember, he's writing to the church where in the same letter he talks about Satan's ministers have invaded the church. So he's talking to people where their church already has these people amongst them. And he says this, rather, from verse 2 of chapter 4, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, he said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Stand firm, preach Christ. The gospel is all about Jesus. The gospel is by Jesus. The gospel is for Jesus. And the power of the gospel is in Jesus. Stand firm. Stand firm. We need more of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to these things, don't we? We need more of the Holy Spirit to open other people's eyes to the truth around us. It's him who opens the eyes of people's hearts to see him for the first time. He always instigates the process. So we need to pray, don't we? That's good timing. 12 o'clock, look at that. I think we need to pray. Jesus. Jesus, in the world we live in, the, the internet and the amount of TV channels we have, let alone the influences of people in our social circles, Lord, we are exposed to so many things so many variations on a theme, so many errant theologies and doctrines, so many understandings of what it means 
to be saved, so many understandings of what it means to be alive on this earth, so many understandings of who created it all and who's behind it all, or if there is a God. Lord, if we find it hard to keep up or to stand firm, imagine how the people who don't know you do. Lord, they're being pulled in different directions and they go where they want to be itched, where they want to be tickled. But Lord, let us not fall into the same trap. Lord, I just ask right now for each one of us here, Lord, may your Holy Spirit just touch each one of us now and just give us a confidence to know that we can stand firm in you and for you. Even if we're the only Christian freak in the workplace, Lord, we just need to be confident that we are who you want us to be and we stand firm for what you want us to stand firm for. Help us to recognise the truth and therefore help us to recognise what is not. Lord, keep us safe. Lord, help us just to have the strength just to keep committing to you and to keep feeding ourselves on sound doctrine even if we don't want to hear it. But Lord, we need more of your Holy Spirit to keep on doing so. We want to preach you. We want to preach Christ in a world that doesn't know Christ. We want to stand firm for Christ in a world that doesn't know Christ. We want to be Christ in a world that doesn't know Christ. In fact, you've already said we are. We are you because we are your body. So Lord, just let us live like that. By your Holy Spirit's power. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord. It's all for you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.